This is Michael O'Connor, the Clueless Gent, and we have some high-flying bookish goodness in this episode. Have you heard about habitable writing, living prose? How would you feel about getting some great writing advice from an airline captain, a cartoonist, and a successful published writer? We have all that and more coming right up. I'm so excited. We're a bookish Texas podcast. We try to keep it fun. So everyone who listens will stay until we're done. We'll talk about some Texas books and Texas authors too. And along the way, we hope to bring some bookish joy to you. Chris Mano earned his undergraduate degree in English from the Virginia Military Institute, and he then went on to earn his pilot wings in the U.S. Air Force. After leaving the military, Chris was scooped up by a major airline where he just recently retired as a Boeing 737 captain. He is a successful cartoonist and author, and he also earned a PhD in English from Texas Christian University, where he now teaches. His complete bio is in the show notes, as well as some photos. Chris teaches habitable writing, living prose, stories you can live yourself rather than just read. Maybe we can get him to tell us a little bit about that. Chris, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Michael. It's a great opportunity. Thank you for inviting me. Absolutely. So, habitable prose, um, what is that? Exactly what we're striving for in writing and for our readers is prose not only that they experience and decode the words, but rather they live the experience. It's visceral. Because when they live the experience, as opposed to just having it related to them, they own the experience. It becomes their experience, their story. And uh, that is the success, the gold standard in writing. I teach my students and I aspire to in my own writing. Can you give us some examples? Well, it's one of the simplest things is allowing people to have the visceral and the tactile, which means heavy emphasis on the sensory input, uh, the living of it, rather than the, the WAF, the wasing of it, which most people teach in creative writing is that if you have to was it, people aren't living it. They're having it described to them as if someone came out of a theater and told them about the movie rather than them being in there and and experiencing the sensory input, the touch, the taste, the smell, the feel, uh, the emotions, the fear, the things, rather than describing someone had fear, you give them the cues and, and the feeling that comes from terror, that comes from uh, you know, the physicality of that. It's always striving to recreate the physicality, the visceral for the reader because they have the experience their heart pounds rather than being told that the protagonist heart pounded. Yeah, that, that is a good description. And that is a, a wonderful example about the movie theater. Uh, as, yeah. so, as soon as you said that, it was crystal clear exactly what you were talking about. Well, it's very important, I think, as writers to not lose sight of the fact that we're not simply encoding words and symbols into an experience that people decode and then figure out how it feels. It's almost like in a foreign language, you want fluency. You don't want to be translating from English to Spanish or French or German. What you want is to be thinking in German, Spanish or French so that you get the meaning, the the real uh, authentic experience. In the same way with writing, you want your readers to live this, to have their heart pound to have their sadness, to have their joy in what you're writing rather than simply saying there was joy, there was happiness, there was fear. Exactly. You know, when a a character is in a a certain setting, you know, what pronounced about that setting? If it's down by the ocean, does he smell, you know, the salt air? Mm -hmm. Does he Mm -hmm. smell fish? 
you know, sensory input, as you said, that is so important to me as a reader, covering as many senses as possible. Yeah, it's almost like a crossover from art to literature, because you learn as an artist to keep a picture file, if only in your mind, when you see a, something that strikes you, remember how that looks, or even in commercial art, they always teach, uh, if you see a picture of something in the magazine that you might ever draw, grab it, because you need that as a reference, and I always tell students of writing, uh, those, those visceral feelings that you get, the metaphors you live out, the sunset you see, the, the dew that you feel, or, or the things that cue some type of emotional response for you, write it down, save it, catalog it, have your toolkit of metaphors, of sensory input, of similes that work, and keep them, keep them handy, because that'll beef up your writing for your readers to live the experience rather than being told the experience. So you keep your file, you keep your file going of metaphor and experiences as a writer so that you can, uh, a lot of times if you've been writing for a good long time, you go, oh good, this one will work so well. This feeling, this sensory input, this vision will fit real well in this writing. And that, that's golden for the reader as well. So have you been pretty successful with that with your students? Are they receptive to it? A lot of them are that when they finally, the light bulb goes off, that we're not simply relating things. We're not listing things. We're not uh, offering simply a catalog of events or things or experiences. What we're doing is, is creating the feeling that other people can live. And that some of the people take the ball and run with it. They do a really tremendous job. I try to start folks out like in the, I'll be teaching three classes of writing. We'll start out with a little bit of poetry because I want them to strip down their thinking and their writing, which is the most distilled form is that, you know, force them into a haiku. There's no rhyme, but there is definitely meter. There definitely is structure to get them thinking. We must, uh, cue up feeling. We got to cue up emotion and vision. That's how we're supposed to be doing it. Uh, less is more. So we start with that. And that, I'll have a lot of quizzical looks, but I guarantee by midterm, I'll have a lot of folks that feel pretty strong about what they're doing. Now, I can see where that falls uh, easily into the realm of fiction, but do you think there's also room in nonfiction or habitable writing? Yeah, I think it's essential because otherwise it's wearing, it's just listing, it's cataloging. In an airline pilot's life, I opened the scene, uh, opened the book with a scene of a free fall gone bad that I actually lived through. But I wanted people to feel the shark raving terror of the earth coming up at uh, near terminal velocity and me being able to pick out things like cows on the ground that scared the snot out of me, realizing that if I'm distinguishing cows at the speed I'm at with no parachute, I'm really in deep trouble. And I wanted people to, to have the shark raving terror or in Mexico City when an air traffic controller in the weather at night had vectored us into a mountain and we weren't sure we're going to make it over the top. I wanted every single person reading that not to hear me say it, but to relive the pucker themselves. That's the very edge. Yes. And you, you did a great job. I distinctly remember those two scenes uh, from your books. Well, the, the thing in Mexico city was probably the worst ever, but for me, it was a lesson that there was really no fear involved. And I actually have told my brother at the time, if I ever do uh, not come back from a flight, you tell my wife that uh, I, I wasn't scared at the end. And my last thoughts were of her, which is exactly what happened in that situation in the book. Wow. So do you think, um, since, you know, you've written several books about your flying experiences, I would imagine that flying as much as you have that has so many different stories. And I think you put a lot of those into your air crew confidential. Yes. 
there are a lot of uh, stories, both uh, in, in the flight itself and in the, the maneuvering and the actual handling of an aircraft. And I try to put as much of that in the book as possible because I, I feel like this is something I want to have and remember. But also there are folks who are like, well, what is it like to uh, fly a huge jet? What does it feel like to have 150 people, 160 people behind the door? Um, I tried to put as much, as much of that as possible in it because, for one thing, I wanted to pass it along for others who are coming up through the ranks. Here's what you can aspire to. Here's what you can achieve. Here's what it feels like to go supersonic or to pull uh, six Gs and do acro. I wanted it, you know, to be there so that folks can say, "Let me try this on. Let me live this myself." So there's a lot of that in the physicality, and then there's also the, you know, the psychodrama of it, the psychomachia. You know, what happens on layovers. The, behind closed doors, what is the secret, what is the life like, what is the kind of the nomadic life of the crew member like. So I wanted some of that, again, to preserve it and also so folks can read it and live it themselves and, you know, kind of a little bit of a peek behind the curtain. Aircrew Confidential, um, you know, it's, it's basically a collection of snippets of, of stories and some of those stories are, you know, what you might, you know, hear, I guess, sitting in the cockpit from other crew members or just kind of hanging around. Exactly. We, we call it the jump seat confessional, both in the cockpit and in the cabin, that people spill their guts and then you go your separate ways. You never see each other again. Oh, that's but there's funny. a certain amount of truth in it. And, you know, you could, the things you would never tell anyone else. And it's kind of like in both books, you don't use so much names. It's my brother, my friend, my co-pilot. Uh, and then the stories just come out. So a lot of those stories are more than likely based on reality. Absolutely. Uh, every one of them is someone I know either did it or witnessed it or I witnessed it. And then a couple things, you know, like the returning a soldier, a soldier's remains back from Philadelphia. That was something I struggled with. That was one of the most difficult things I ever did because I knew what it was about. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's not all personal, but it's some of the stories like the uh, one where the first officer answered the phone in one of the flight attendants rooms. I know those two. <laughs> wow. Have you had any pushback from people who may have been portrayed in the book? Not at all. Not at all. I'm kind of surprised because I didn't really go easy, uh, particularly on things that maybe in both the Air Force and in uh, the airline world weren't what they should have been. But I didn't pull any punches on that. And no, I haven't really had any pushback. And a lot of folks have read it said, yeah, I recall that too. <laughs> <laughs> Very interesting changing subjects. Where did cartooning come from? You know, wh- why do you do it? I guess I just always have, and it never seemed like anything special. It's just kind of like writing your name. If you want to do it, you just sort of whip it out. I've never uh, had any art training or formal training, but it's always been something that gives people a laugh. And it's almost like having a shared laugh. And there's so much of that. that it's, there's so much good feeling in that people laughing, particularly at things that are totally inappropriate even, but it, it's fun. And it's always been a part of my life from uh, school to uh, college to the military, although that was toned down a little, as you recall, in the military wasn't always welcome. And in the airline world, I've had cartoon books out uh, ever since I've been in, in the business. It's just something that's fun. It's fun to share. It just makes me laugh even drawing some of them. Yeah. For our listeners who may not know, Chris has his own cartoon line. Did you have a name for it? Well, I have the cartoon department on Facebook and it has all kinds of the full range of cartooning and different topics, both aviation and just general life, a lot of medical, a lot of just today's stuff, especially the craziness of uh, pandemic uh, society and just the funny things we do, the crazy things we do, the things that 
as Jimmy Buffett said, if we couldn't laugh, we would, might all go insane. So it's kind of a good outlet. And I think people, you know, memes and gifts and uh, digital media sort of take over, but there's still a very fractional market that people still like cartoons. Yeah, you had one a short time ago, and uh, I laughed my butt off on it when I first read it. You know, it's a mother and child standing next to an older man, and the older man has his finger out, and the mother said, yeah. I think she said something like, during the pandemic, you know, it's really not safe to pull grandpa's finger. Exactly. It's like, you know, the crossover there. And so we have, uh, a, you know, a vaccine. I don't think I'd pull his finger. So Yeah, I, I just thought that was so funny. How do you come up with these ideas? I mean, is your mind always in that mode trying to come up with new ideas? Or do you just sit down and... No, it's just, it, it's something funny about it. Like the, one of my favorites this year was the three wise men on horses. And you can see this, uh, excuse me, camels. And you can see the, the star in the east. And one says to the other, if we add frankincense, we get free shipping. It's like, I just love that. I don't know. It's just funny. <laughs> because it's just, you know, not to be disrespectful, but it is kind of funny. It's just, and that's the way we are these days. I get free shipping, you know. Yeah, that's, that's, that's amazing. There'll be links in the show notes, you know, if you want to check out some of Chris's uh, cartoons. He has a lot on Instagram as well. So uh, please yeah. do check them out. And I, I, I promise you, you know, you'll, you'll laugh. <laughs> it's, it's easy. And with degrees in English, it seems like you've been gravitating toward writing your entire life. How did, how did that start? I think it's probably because I came from a family of big readers and we loved reading and even starting with the simple, the Hardy Boys series, you couldn't get enough of them. Uh, my mother was a big reader and big on grammar and then having gone to some Catholic schools where they heavily emphasized grammar and, and punctuation and spelling and I just loved reading myself and I always had the curiosity about it. And of course, when I went to college, I thought, oh, I'll major in math because I could uh, it would dovetail with my aspirations to be a pilot. But then after I flunked calculus, I realized, well, no, that's probably not my calling. So the easiest degree I could get was English, but I never lost the desire to understand rhetoric, to understand how words and fiction and poetry have force, which eventually drove me to, you know, I'm midway through my airline career and I decided, you know, there's got to be more than just climb crews to send land. And uh, I went over to TCU and inquired and uh, came out the, the far end seven years later with a doctorate in English and I started teaching there in 2003 and I'm still teaching there. Yeah. I think that reading and writing has actually devolved in our society over the past few, few decades. And I'm, I'm sure it's because of television and, and everything else. Uh, what, what, kind yeah. of, what kind of impact do you think that has on us as a society? I think we're losing the ability to see the art and we're just demanding the information because as you know, digital media is mostly bits of information, but there's little art to it. And, and we strip it down as far as possible. It's almost analogous to the, the way cartoons and art forms of hand art are giving way to the digital of the gif and the meme. And we want snippets of information. We have 140 characters. We don't care about punctuation, syntax, grammar. We're simply putting out data. And to me, that's a huge loss. I mean, the beauty of poetics, uh, the, as Faulkner said, every um, novelist is a failed short story writer and every failed short story writer is a, or every short story writer is a failed poet means so much of the aesthetics of it. We're losing it. We're stripping it. We're saying it doesn't matter. Just, just get it out, get the data to me, get the information. And it's, it's soulless and heartless as opposed to fiction and poetry and the things that, that are humanity that makes us different than just information consumers. We're also living art. We're, we're living our lives and 
our emotions and, and we're, we, we lose that when we, we give up the aesthetics and go to just uh, character speak or a texting and the, the way people text and including me we're realizing that we don't have the space or the, the wherewithal to do a beautifully crafted paragraph. We're just giving out bits of information. I think it's sad. And I'm, I'm so glad liberal arts still exists, but uh, communications is, is really stripping the humanity and the aesthetics out of what could be such a beautiful way of experiencing life. Yeah, I completely agree with that. And I, to be honest, I, I struggle with that. You know, when uh, social media, particularly Twitter came out, I really struggled for omitting words you know, just to yeah. get the point across, you know, in a fewer amount of words, it's, it's very hard for me. It goes against my basic nature. Yeah. Cause you're not sharing anything visceral. What you're doing is saying, let me give you some data. And is that all we are? And I think the problem is, you know, when, when I do it, I, I, I know I only do it because I have to, but I know how to do it the right way. But when yeah. you see all of these bits of information from, you know, I guess particularly younger people and young people, I'm not picking on you. Well, I guess maybe I am. Uh, you know, I have to ask myself, well, do they, do they know how to do it the right way? Yeah. And I, I you know, I have 60 uh, students uh, a semester and I get the handful of them that really engage the aesthetics and find the beauty in it and go further. And it's not necessarily what you would think that they go on to be artists or uh, writers so much as they are such thorough people, they go on to be doctors and lawyers and that high professions that require a lot of more complex thinking rather than road and mechanics. And I think it's a loss to everyone if we, if we give that up. I, I just, I'm sad about that. Even though I come from a technical field where there's nothing but the technical and the jargon and the engineering and the flying business, but that doesn't mean as people we should give that up as well. I think it's sad. Yes, it is. Going back again to your Aircrew Confidential book, there are some chapters in there that, that are written in poetic prose. And I even pointed that out, you know, in my review. And, yeah. you know, you actually don't see that very often, especially these days. And I, I just thought that was beautiful. Well, I appreciate that. And I keep that in my classes. I tell kids, students, I shouldn't call kids, but they're young adults. I tell them, you know, if you use poetic meter, why do you suppose that Shakespeare used pentameter? And it wasn't because he was trying to be fancy so much as he was trying to have everyone on board with him in this rhythm so that they could figure out what the next piece of drama was coming because there's no amplification. And I told him, you try a little bit of pentameter. Just try a little bit in your paragraph. And people won't know why uh, it follows them and it leads them like an earworm and it, they can't get it out of their head. It's because po the poesy, the poetic, is the essence of writing. And poetry and prose is, is the secret weapon. It's the secret sauce that makes uh, the turn of a phrase something people keep coming back to. A T.S. Eliot, a Virginia Woolf, Oscar Wilde. They all knew that. They all used that. And you can find that in there. And you know what? I, sometimes the students I have, when they try it, they go, wow, this really does work. And nobody even knows. You can't even see it. It's the engineering behind it. it, it it's rhetoric at its essence. It's beautiful. Do you have any, any cheats, cheats on being able to do that? I, I always tell people, do read uh, things like Iron John, Robert Bly, uh, Khalil Gibran, those who use meter in their prose uh, prolifically, Virginia Woolf. It doesn't even matter how much of it you read. And, of course, the master of that, and I, I can't stress enough, is Algernon Swinburne. No one was the master of meter uh, like him. Tennyson even acknowledged because he was a peer of Tennyson. This is the man. And when you see his prose, and it's 
uh, the whole meter of back and forth that he uses, not only in his words, but in his plot. It's the kind of thing that is so ironclad. People just can't even understand why is this so powerful? Well, that's part of it. It's the meter is there. The soul is there. I asked uh, Neil Easterbrook, who was kind of the guru of critical theory and writing in the United States, and he said, it's because it's the essence of our heartbeat. That's the way we think in dyad. Boom, 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 boom. And when you look at Shakespeare, tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow creeps in the steady pace to the last syllable of recorded time, it's like a rhythm that people are run, are going down the sea slope with him. They're hanging in there. They know the next beat's coming, and they're anticipating it and they're engaged and they're living it. That's the essence of, of habitable prose. And that the whole idea of having poetic meter in, in writing and in prose, poetry and prose, it's powerful stuff. T.S. Eliot knew that. Uh, Tennyson knew that. Walter Pater. The, the, the giants all knew that that's the essence of it. I think that goes back to Aristotle. See, another goes back to reading again, just like you said. Yeah, reading good books so that you can write good books. Yeah, uh, Larry McMurtry, uh, James Wade, who wrote uh, All Things Left Wild that I reviewed this year for Lone Star is the most powerful use of imagery, uh, poetry, uh, raw emotion. It, it, it's, a, it, it's a throwback. It, it's like he's the next Larry McMurtry. Uh, it, it's the powerful stuff is out there. It, it's few and far between, but you, if you look for it, it's there. Exactly. I tried to put in as much of that strength and poetry and prose as I could in Blood and Remembrance because it's raw. It's raw and gritty, but if you have the combination of raw and gritty and poetic meter, at some point there, it just grabs you. It still grabs me in a lot of places, and I think that's important. I wanted readers to, you know, one of the most horrible things I, I, I ever thought of in grappling with was Death Row, which is why I attacked it to put it in this book and read it and did the research and found out what death row is really like. And, you know, that, that grittiness combined with a poetic voice. Uh, I, I think it's pretty powerful stuff. It still is. It is. And I remember that, in, uh, that, that was in East Jesus. Is that right? Well, uh, East Jesus is the original book and that was the uh, runner up for best fiction of 2016 and blood and remembrance is the prequel that was uh, also runner up for best fiction of 2018. And it's a prequel to East Jesus because if you recall in East Jesus, the main character, uh, they were coming from a funeral and, and the funeral is all explained in the prequel. And it was just speaking with the publisher at the time. She said, do you think there's a sequel to East Jesus? And I thought, no, there's really not, but there is a prequel. And that's one of my favorite books I ever wrote was Blood and Remembrance because it had that third person freedom to express a lot of good research and just a gritty feel, which is what it really needed. You sound like you get a lot of satisfaction from your writing. Is that true? I think so. I think so. But to where it becomes a living, visceral thing, you know, there's always this controversy. Is the meaning set by the writer or is the meaning set by the reader? And I, I firmly believe it's whatever the reader experiences. So you want to give them that maximum visceral experience. And it becomes their experience. How people experience death row uh, through my book and Huntsville prison, uh, through the book, how they get to try it on and live it and feel and, and walk away from it. Uh, it it's almost like at the end of any, uh, Christopher Marlowe Renaissance play like Faust, people were designed, it was designed and engineered. So people walk out of the theater and say, what just happened? It's that blinding flash. And I, I tried to put that in uh, blood and remembrance, let it end that way. You know, it, it has the strength to it, a grittiness, and it's a visceral experience, I hope. One thing I've always wondered is 
even find time to write. You got the full-time job. And I, I know that your work hours as a pilot are different from the regular nine to five, but you know, you also teach college and I know that you are, you're into fitness in a large way. How do you do that? How do you, how do you squeeze time for writing in? I think it's just, you, you, it's what Dulcie Moore, one of the gift, most gifted writers, the late Dulcie Moore had once told me writers write because they can't not write. And you just do. It's something you have to do. It's like musicians. They just, they're not going to stop no matter what the obstacle is, uh, you know, what the odds are and, and what the demands of regular life are. And, and to me, I'm more in a participative mode as a college professor because I like to think of myself more as the Sherpa. I'm there to hand them the tools, point the way, and then climb the mountain with them. And it, it's so exhilarating, I couldn't give that up. But there's nothing I could give up. You know, writing, uh, as Susan Mary Malone, who's also a wonderful uh, prose artist and a short fiction writer, says it, uh, it'll pick at you until you write it. So you might as well just start writing, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. If you were in the middle of writing a particular book, during that time when you're not writing, are you thinking about writing? Absolutely. And I'm, again, looking for my catalog from my picture file when I see something, uh, you know, a contrail in the sky or the, the way the sunset or these clouds or this feeling or that frost or this particular bird, what it's doing. Uh, you know, everything you see, you grab and you go, there's, there's meaning to this and I'm going to say this, I'm going to use this. And it's almost like, too, when you finish a book, and then you hear a turn of a phrase that uh, from Blood and Remembrance, oh, this would have been perfect for Randy Mack to have said, well, it's too late. The book's published, you know. But you live it through with and with your character so that it's a living thing. It never stops while you're writing. Like, oh, this will be perfect. This, this setup, this scene, this feel, uh, this metaphor, this simile, you know, this applies. This, this will go so well here. It's just something that's ongoing. You know, how do you manage to turn that off? That was a very good point. What you said, you know, after you, you finish your book and you wrote it the best that you possibly can, and it goes off to the publisher and then afterwards, or even after publication, you know, you just had this brainstorm of an idea of something that could have been done better. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's too late now. So how do, how do you turn that off? It's postpartum depression. You don't. <laughs> <laughs> You know, the kids, I like to go into a bookstore or a library and see the kids on the shelf. No, they're doing okay. They seem to be doing well. Wow. A writer spends so much time, you know, when he writes a novel or any book, really. Yeah. It's just, you know, just a part of him. Yeah. And it should be because if it's going to be soulful, it's going to take some of your soul and it should. Mm -hmm. I don't know why more people don't read. Surprisingly, in my entire family and all of my friends, I don't really know of anyone that reads constantly. Yeah. Yeah. And a lot of what's being read, um, this particular genre fiction is simply a kind of a repetition. It's kind of a music compared to a symphony, but it seems to be, you know, that level of escape and decoding and, and you know, the music is sufficient as opposed to, well, let's go to the symphony. Well, it's like, let's not, let's just listen to music. You know, yeah. ACDC has been writing the same song for 50 years and I'm still listening to it. So I'm just as guilty, <laughs> yeah. But, yeah. you know, with, with writing and there's so much beauty out there. I, as I said, there's nothing better that I've read in the last year than James Wade's uh, All Things Left Wild. And it's out there for people. You almost want them to have that gift, read that, live that. You know, it, I, I don't know. I'm with you on that, but it's a sad thing that it kind of falls by the wayside to more digital brief, uh, shallow uh, decoding of information rather than living the beauty 
of uh, poetry or a symphony. Yeah, I, I guess the really sad thing is those people that don't read and never have, they have no idea what they're missing. Yeah, yeah exactly. And there are some long uh, theories, and we had an ongoing debate in academia whether Harry Potter was good or bad, but what we finally decided, at least in where I teach, anything that gets uh, young folks reading a thousand pages of vigorous details and they know it in and out, that's a good thing. Yes, I completely agree, and I feel the same way about that series. It's very rare these days to get a series that young people are going gravitate, to gravitate to, like the Harry Potter series. Yeah, and I wish they would. I wish they gravitate towards Toni Morrison, but that's not going to happen. I know, but it's still that is the most beautiful collection of writing. That I think she is the writer of our time, as far as I'm concerned, in fiction and beauty. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Lastly, since you are an English professor, you know, what is your best advice for someone who wants to write but hasn't taken the plunge yet? I feel like you just have to write. You have to. To me, and I try to explain this early on in in my courses, it's about story and not the story or a story, but the, the idea of story is that emotional continuity that brings characters and situations and dynamics together. That's real story. That's uh, Virginia Woolf. That's Oscar Wilde. That's uh, Larry McMurtry. Things that come together and they're livable and visceral and you serve that story. You're not writing a story and you're not uh, creating a story so much as you're listening to it and you're giving it the best voice that it can. And you live story, you respect story, and you even have to trust story. Because, you know, I've been writing for a lot of years, and I have a lot of books, won some awards, but I still have very little confidence in my own writing. But it doesn't matter if you have confidence in the fact of story, which is that beautiful essence, that dynamic. It's going to come out, and it's going to come out in the best prose you can give it, give it the best visceral, experiential uh, cues that so that readers can live this as well, the highs, the lows, the things that they want to try on and experience. So I would have to tell writers, just trust the story, trust story itself to carry you along. Because even in East Jesus, I wasn't sure how it was going to end until about two thirds of the way through. Because story is strong. Story will take you there. When you're doing fiction, if you just trust in it, and even as a young writer in my first book, of course, you're writing, you're going to write the heck out of it. I'm writing so much. I'm writing so much simile. But towards the end, you get to realize after three or four books, trust story. Trust your readers. You don't have to trust yourself because I still don't trust myself as a writer. But trust story. Trust your readers. That, that's the biggest thing. That is awesome advice. And you are, you are so correct. Well, that's where the satisfaction comes from, from story. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Story itself. And being privileged to have touched that vein of story. It's like copper work in Robert Bly says, the copper work of conducting electricity. That's what we're doing. And it, to have been privileged and to do a decent just, uh, justice to the, the story itself. Uh, that's the privilege of the writer. So always go for that. Trust the story. Uh, trust the readers. And even for those people that don't read, you know, they story is still inbred in them. You know, I, yes. I don't know how we get it, but we just have it. And we, we know good story. Yeah. Yeah. And when you, when it hits you, it, it does. And if you're the, it's a privilege to be on the writing end of it, it's a wonderful thing. I don't think there's much better than that. It's like a, a form of parenthood and anybody who's a parent realizes what that's all about. So to be privileged enough to do it, uh, you know, you have to plow through it. It's a lot of grunt work. It's not easy. 
uh, writing's one thing, revising is another, but you stick to it and you do justice to the story. You've been entrusted with it and now you do justice to it. And even if it doesn't ever sell, which most doesn't, there are 700,000 new titles added a year to what, 2.5 million, I believe, uh, right now in print. So you don't do that. You write for story. You respect the story and you let it be what it is. And that's our job. The rest of it is, well, that's somebody else's, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. I always think it's better to write for yourself first. And yeah. don't worry yeah. about anyone else, you know, right? So that you're satisfied. Tell tell the story your way or tell your story. Yeah, because that's authentic. And if you're not authentic, readers know that. It doesn't come across. If you're not authentic, what's the point? Very well said. I, I can see why you're a English professor. <laughs> <laughs> well, one of my students in the in critique said, watching me teach, it's kind of like watching a guy hit a golf ball in a shower stall because I guess I kind of rant a lot. But, <laughs> you know. Oh, that's another great example. Yeah, I, I come out of class sometimes and wonder, uh, it's an hour and 20, and I'm like, did I say anything cogent at all? <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's funny. So is there anything else that you wanted to cover in the podcast today? Anything you want to uh, put a plug in for? No, I appreciate the work you're doing because I know you believe in story, you believe in good writing, you believe in literature, and, and it's kind of like uh, Lone Star Literary and Christine Hall and uh, Michelle Lancaster. I believe in what they're doing, and you're a part of that. Doing that is to, to bring literature, to bring the appreciation of reading and literacy and, and the importance to our humanity. So I'm a big fan of, of both your podcast and your reviews, uh, The Clueless Gents. So this is the kind of... Um, basic uh, groundswell that we need to keep alive the basic of aesthetics in our humanity so I think it's wonderful I'm lucky to have had the story you know, to work with story as many as times as I have and to be able to be the Sherpa for the kids now I shouldn't call them kids, the students, the young adults coming up who are learning that themselves and I'm really happy to at least be a, somewhat of the vortex of this so. Well I thank you for those kind words and it has been a complete pleasure to have you on the podcast today. I mean, you just gave so much free information. <laughs> well, I thank you for having me because it's a wonderful opportunity. I love the work that you do. I've been following your reviews for a long time. So keep up the good work and with this podcast with more folks uh, and discussing literature. I'll definitely be a subscriber. So I can't wait to see what's next. Awesome. One more. We appreciate that, Chris. You too, Michael. Thanks for having me. Okay. Bye. Well. Wow. I mean, that is a big wow. All of that information coming out from Chris Mano, and you can tell that he knows his stuff. Every one of you should have been able to get something out of that, whether it's about reading or writing. But I, I think, you know, he definitely gave a lot of good information about how to improve your writing. If you really want to find out more about him, the man, and an airline pilot's life is really his uh, autobiography. The Aircrew Confidential is a very, it's an easy read because it's a collection of snippets. And those chapters that he wrote with poetic prose, you may not have ever read anything quite like that. I highly encourage you to check it out. If you have any comments on today's podcast, I'd appreciate hearing about them. You know, did you like it? Did you not like it? What do you think? This is Michael O'Connor, The Clueless Gent. Thank you so much for listening.